Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on GPS, the showdown in Venezuela. President Maduro versus self-declared President Guaido. How will this all end? The eyes of the entire world are upon you. We will bring you the latest with Guaido's representative to Washington, Carlos Vecchio. Then the Trump-Kim summit, Russia's nuclear arsenal, and Donald Trump's border wall. We'll talk about all that and more with an all-star foreign policy panel. And what do the extinction of an Australian rat, a massive hole in an Antarctic glacier, and America's recent polar vortex have in common? They're all believed to be related to climate change. My guest says it really is time to panic. But first, here's my take. It's refreshing to see the Democratic Party bubbling with new ideas. But its new thinking seems starkly different from the party's reform efforts of the past three decades. The wonky proposals of the Clinton-Obama era were pragmatic and incremental, and they mixed market incentives with government action. Today, we have big, dramatic, stirring ideas, and that could be the problem. In their zeal to match the sweeping rhetoric of right-wing populism, Democrats are spinning out dramatic proposals indeed, but in which facts are sometimes misrepresented, the numbers occasionally don't add up, and emotional appeal tends to trump actual policy analysis. When Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was confronted recently by Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes about an egregious misstatement about Pentagon spending, she responded, I think that there's a lot of people more concerned about being precisely factually and semantically correct than about being morally right. Perhaps this casual attitude towards facts explains the way that she and many others on the left have misrepresented the deal that New York offered Amazon to bring a new headquarters there. If we're willing to give away $3 billion for this deal, we could invest those $3 billion in our district ourselves if we wanted to. We could hire out more teachers. We can fix our subways. We can put a lot of people to work for that money if we wanted to. But as Mayor Bill de Blasio explained... This was a deal that was going to bring $27 billion in revenue to the state and city for things like public education, mass transit, affordable housing. And that $3 billion would go back in tax incentives was only after we were getting the jobs and getting the There's revenue. There's not $3 billion There's in no money that money, exists right. anywhere, correct? Exactly. Or consider the race by prominent Democrats to embrace Medicare for all. A variety of expert studies have estimated that the total increased government spending would be between two and a half and three trillion dollars a year. Few of the many proposals being floated 
would likely raise anything close to that in revenue. And if a Herculean effort were made to raise revenue for Medicare for all, there would be few easy avenues left to fund any of the other ambitious proposals on the new Democratic wish list. Let me be clear, universal health care is an important moral and political goal. But the U.S. system is insanely complex, and getting from here to single-payer would probably be so disruptive and expensive that it's just not going to happen. Now, there is a path to universal coverage that is simpler. Switzerland has one of the best healthcare systems in the world, and it is essentially Obamacare with a real mandate. But that probably feels too much like those incremental policies of the past. Or consider the tax proposals being tossed around on the left, including a wealth tax championed by Elizabeth Warren. I understand the appeal of tapping into those vast accumulations of billionaire loot. But there is a reason that nine of the 12 European countries that instituted similar taxes have repealed them in the last 25 years. They massively distort economic activity, often incentivizing people to hide assets, devalue them, and create dummy corporations. There are smarter, better ways to address inequality. Raise the capital gains tax to the same level as income taxes. Increase the estate tax. Get rid of the massive loopholes that make the American tax code one of the most complex and corrupt in the world. But again, this is less stirring stuff than burning the billionaires. AOC's comments on 60 Minutes reminded me of a July 2016 exchange between Newt Gingrich and CNN's Alison Camerata. Violent crime across the country is down. This is uh, the FBI statistics. They're not a liberal organization. No, They're a but crime what I said is equally true. People feel, feel it. more threatened. Yes, they feel it, but the facts don't support Fine. it. As a, as a political ca- candidate, I'll go with how people feel, and I'll let you go with the theoreticians. We already have one major political party that now routinely twists facts, disregards evidence, ignores serious policy analysis, and just makes stuff up to appeal to people's emotions and prejudices. If the Democrats now start moving along this path as well, American politics will truly descend into a new dark age. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. The week's long standoff over the presidency of Venezuela has become a physical standoff and a deadly one at that. Yesterday, it played out at the Colombian border as Venezuelan troops, loyal to President Maduro, prevented aid from coming in. The self-declared president, Juan Guaido, had declared Saturday that the deadline for getting a large backlog of aid into the country was there. A Guaido supporter told CNN that at least five people were killed in the clashes that ensued between the two sides. 285 people were injured, according to the Colombian Foreign Ministry, when, Venezuelan, uh, when Venezuela fired tear gas and rubber bullets at protesters. As for the U.S. response, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called Maduro a sick tyrant for blocking the aid deliveries. Tomorrow, Vice President Pence will meet with Guaido in Colombia. Joining me now is Guaido's envoy to the United States, Carlos Vecchio. Um, Mr. Vecchio, let me ask you, uh, is the bulk of the aid getting through uh, the Colombian border? And why is it not getting through the Brazilian border since both the Colombian government and the Brazilian government back Mr. Guaido and our harsh critics of the current uh, president or the, the, uh, of, of Nicolas Maduro? Well, thank you, Farid, for this opportunity. 
And just let me t tell you the following. Uh, I have seen human rights abuses since this regime took power, uh, particularly since 2014. But yesterday was a tragedy, was a crime against humanity. What we saw yesterday was a, a regime killing innocent people, trying to bring food and medicine to our country. So therefore, Maduro is not only creating the humanitarian uh, crisis in Venezuela, is also blocking the solution of the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. And that has to be rejected by the entire uh, international community. Um, but let me understand whether it is getting through, how much is getting through, and again, why is it not getting through in Brazil, or from Brazil, but from Colombia? Yeah, you, as you know, I mean, yesterday, uh, three trucks uh, reached our territory in Venezuela, and uh, all of them were burned by the regime. So, unfortunately, the food and medicine couldn't reach uh, the, the people that need that food and medicine. And, and, and that's why we decided just to stop the humanitarian aid. The humanitarian aid will remain in Brazil and Colombia, and then we need to discuss with the Colombian and Brazilian authorities uh, the, the path uh, uh, to come. Uh, 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 in the next days. So we will preserve that humanitarian aid and then we will work together in when that humanitarian aid will enter into our country. Your boss, Juan Guaido, has called on the army to get on the right side of history. So far, the army has not listened to him. It is still backing Maduro. What would it take to get the army to flip? Well, uh, Farid, we need to keep the pressure in different levels on the streets, using our National Assembly as the only elected institution in Venezuela and also put under pressure from the international community. And yesterday, something happened which is, was very relevant. Uh, 16 members from different forces of the military institution decided to support Guaido. And many of them, some of them, uh, spoke to us saying that inside of the military institution, uh, there is a, a huge discontent against uh, uh, the regime, and that will be expressed soon. So we need to to increase the level of pressure and to force the military force to uh, back uh, what we are want to achieve, which is the recovery of our democracy. Uh, President Maduro uh, routinely in every rally, he danced the salsa uh, yesterday, uh, he says uh, Guaido is backed by Trump, uh, is Trump's puppet. Uh, you guys, the Venezuelan people, should, should stay with me. He said this at that salsa dance. Um, how much is that working? In other words, how is it effective is it for Maduro to tell people it's the Americans who want uh, Guaido and uh, we are preserving Venezuelan nationalism? Well, I mean, um, the, the only puppet is Maduro. He's a Cuban puppet. That's the reality. This is a Venezuelan movement led by the people of Venezuela under the leadership of Juan Guaido as an interim president. They are putting their life at risk, as you saw yesterday, in order to recover our democracy. And what we have seen is a fight between democracy and dictatorship. And the free world is supporting our movement. And we need to see it in that way. This is not a problem of ideology. This is not a problem of nationality. This is, again, a fight between democracy and dictatorship. And this is a clear Venezuelan movement led by Venezuelan with a clear agenda set by Venezuelans. And what we are getting is the support of the international community. And I feel so proud.
to be a Venezuelan and to be a Latino because the cost of democracy in these hemispheres is taking place in Venezuela due to the courage of the Venezuelans. Um, let me ask you finally and briefly, um, Donald Trump says all options are on the table, implying that there is a military option uh, that the United States could use. Do you welcome that kind of rhetoric or do you want to make it clear that the United States should not use any military force in this, in this issue? Again, this is not a fight between the United States and the Maduro regime. This is a fight between the free world against the Maduro regime. And keep this in mind, we are dealing with a criminal state. They have been involved in drug trafficking, money laundering, human rights abuses, and of course linked to terrorist group. And we need to consider this in order to elaborate um, do you want to keep, do you uh, keep uh, military options on the table? Do you think the United States yeah, should it, keep military? We need to evaluate all the options under the principle of responsibility to protect, which is, was approved by the UN. We cannot allow that a regime kills its own people. And we have, under the principle of the UN, the responsibility to protect a population is under fire for its own regime. Mr. Vecchio, very important. Thank you so much for joining us. Next on Thank GPS, next on GPS, President Putin's nuclear threat against America and its European allies. Is the Cold War, at least the nuclear arms race, back when we come back? In his annual State of the Nation address, Russia's President Vladimir Putin made a stark threat to the United States and its allies. If Washington places intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Europe, Putin said his tit-for-tat response would be to deploy weapons against the countries that threaten Russia. I have a great panel to talk about that threat and much more. Karl Bildt was the Prime Minister of Sweden. He is now the co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen Hadley was President George W. Bush's National Security Advisor. He is now a principal at Rice Hadley Gates. And Susan Glasser, a longtime former foreign correspondent and editor, is now staff writer at The New Yorker and a CNN global affairs analyst. Steve, let me start with you. That, that rhetoric struck me. I mean, you had been in government during the Cold War in very senior positions. It felt very much like the Cold War. Um, what did you make of it? Well, you know, this is a culmination of a process where Russia has been in violation of the INF Treaty but is in somewhat skillfully put the United States in a dilemma. Do you go ahead and stay in a treaty where the other party is violating it consistency, consistently, or do you accept in some sense the opprobrium of pulling out? And I think after uh, efforts under two administration to get the Russians to return to compliance, the Trump administration has basically bowed to the inevitable and they have decided to pull out. Uh, Carl Bill, does this worry you? Do you, th do you feel as though there's, there is a kind of new nuclear uh, tension in the air? Uh, undoubtedly, that, that is the case. So there's a lot of worry in Europe over this. And, and we all met at the Munich Security Conference last weekend, and this was uh, very much talked about. Uh, the European hope is, of course, that these, the next few months will be used to go back to the negotiating table the one way or the other and try to see if there is some, some sort of solution that can be, that can be achieved. Uh, Putin is now talking about developing very new weapons, hypersonic and other things. That's bad and that's threatening. 
At the same time, as he said, he's saying that uh, if the U.S. doesn't de deploy anything new in Europe, he will not deploy anything new in Europe. Well, NATO says that he has already done that, but perhaps one should take his word and see if one can uh, negotiate something that avoids uh, a new nuclear race uh, over the continent of Europe. Uh, Susan Glasser, you were a foreign correspondent in Moscow, I think, when uh, George W. Bush, Steve Hadley really, mm -hmm. withdrew from the ABM Treaty uh, for similar kinds of reasons. Um, do you think that there is a, a plan here that the Trump administration has? Because th there's a plausible case to be made that, you know, these treaties need to cover the new nuclear powers like China. Um, and maybe that this is a way to go forward. Or is this just an act of peak? Well, I do think there's a, a good argument for modernization of arms control. After all, this is a legacy that we have of a Cold War that is uh, three decades in our past on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm struck by the fact that uh, right now, Carl talks about the possibility of negotiations, but I didn't come out of Munich feeling that there was any imminent plans to actually do so, first of all. Uh, essentially, that it's a lot easier to blow up agreements than it is to make agreements, especially with this particular American president. Uh, you know, it is an interesting fact of arms control that uh, the Russians and the Soviets before them have always been very invested in it in some ways, uh, seeing this as, first of all, confirmation of their great power status. Vladimir Putin, as you know, uh, is a very prickly figure who is uh, very eager to be appear on the world stage as, as, as someone that the United States needs to sit down and negotiate with. Um, speaking of people who enjoy being on the world stage, uh, Steve Hadley, uh, we are in for a new Trump-Kim Jong-un summit. Uh, do you worry that the president is so eager to get that Nobel Peace Prize that Shinzo Abe has already nominated him for, that he might cut a deal that isn't in America's interests? No, I'm not worried about that. He has, uh, he has uh, given the lead on this to Secretary Pompeo. Um, Steve Began, who is the special envoy for Secretary Pompeo, is working this issue, is a very seasoned person. And we know that John Bolton is actually skeptical of the whole proposition of negotiating. So I think there's, a, in some sense, a healthy and dynamic tension within the president's national security team. Uh, I think they are going to try to make some progress. I think they're going to pr probably try to work somewhat uh, incrementally, a step for step. Uh, at this point in time, that may be the, the, the best approach. But I think, um, I think this is a different approach from the president. It's much more a top-down uh, with the meeting with the leaders. I think, though, since the bottom-up approaches of two prior administrations have failed, uh, we ought to give this one the benefit of the doubt and see what they can come up with. Uh, Susan Glasser, you, 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 Trump does seem particularly fascinated by Kim Jong-un. Indeed, he does. Uh, one of the most extraordinary developments of the last couple of years is watching the president of the United States, a great democracy, fall in love with the dictator of North <laughs> Korea. Uh, he calls him Chairman Kim. Uh, when visitors come to President Trump's office, he literally calls out, as he did at that interview with the New York Times a couple of weeks to go, bring the letters, bring the letters, let me show you the letters from Kim Jong-un, which essentially are a series of boilerplate, uh, you know, generic flowery phrases. And, you know, the unease, uh, we can describe it as, as healthy tension, but the deep unease that the president's own 
advisors on foreign policy have about the president's approach to handling one of the the most significant security challenges in the world today. It's it's something that I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.